Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Interview where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Tom Clark, the editor of Prospect magazine and this week we're taking on one of the big themes of our times, populism. And so I'm delighted that we have not one but three guests to guide us through it. And not any old three guests either but the winner and two runners-up of the SA Prize We at Prospect run jointly with the Bennett School of Public Policy in Cambridge. The question, which was set for a chunky £10,000 prize, was is it possible to govern well in the age of populism? Runners-up Nina Foster, who's a senior clerk at the House of Commons, one of a large Centre for Social Justice think tank, and the winner, Callum Watts, who's a policy advisor at the Cabinet Office, are all here to discuss that question with me. Despite those illustrious professional connections they've all got, each of the authors is very much here to speak purely in a personal capacity about the answers that they suggested to the populist challenge. Answers that impressed not only me, but my three fellow judges who are all Cambridge professors, Diane Coyle, Mike Kenny and David Ronson. So thank you all of you for uh, joining us. And we're going to get on to your brilliant schemes, each of you, for rising to the populist challenge in just a moment. But first of all, let's talk about definitions. Nina, there's a bit in your essay about this, so I'm going to pick on on, on you first. I mean, it's quite a slippery term, isn't it? Populism. How how would you define it? Yeah, I think when I started writing the essay, I realised just how difficult it was going to be to give a, a short, sharp definition of populism and I think that in lots of the literature that's out there um, populism is often defined as being aligned with one kind of political ideology on either end of the spectrum and what I really find is that populism exists across the political spectrum and, and that really it's it's kind of a, a discourse um, that ad- advocates for better forms of governance um, instead of this ideology that's kind of intent on democratic disruption, which which seems to be how it's most commonly understood at the moment. Interesting. So, um, Oliver, how do we think about who's included in populism? I mean, like, there's some people, most obviously Donald Trump, who, like, everyone would be inclined to include. But if we're talking about maybe a populist style rather than a populist agenda, which... Um, I think is what Nina's getting at there. Would you include 
Jeremy Corbyn with his many and his few? And would you include Tony Blair, whose phrase that was, the many and the few in the first place? Yes, I, I think the, the key thing for me in, in arguing about what populism is was that it was a sort of a logic um, of action, or more generously sort of an art of governance. I think that's very generous to call populism an art, art of governance. But I think it's, it's the reason uh, taking that approach means that you can include a wide variety of politicians um, who are not necessarily populist uh, in, the, in their entirety, but can uh, take from populist language and rhetoric. And, and, and I think that's, that's the critical part about populism is that it is this sort of uh, uh, art of governance. It is, it is a, a technique that's used and can be deployed in, by multiple politicians. So you can include Tony Blair in that assessment. You can also use Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, and I think one of the, in the last US presidential elections, I think one of the, the key standout quotes from both of the both of the presidential candidates, Trump and, and Hillary Clinton, was this idea that that Hillary said that there are that Trump supporters are basket of deplorables, are irredeemable, and I think that buys into this populist rhetoric. So it's very, I think it's, that's one of the reasons why it's very dangerous, is because it can be used by seemingly uh, ordinary politicians who buy into representative democracy. Okay, that's interesting. And Callum, have you got anything to add on this question about the definition? Um, Nothing to what the other two have said other than I think uh, there's an interesting difference between who sort of identifies as populists and who gets either accused of being a populist or lauded for being a populist. And I think those things vary quite a lot. Um, I was living in the US when uh, Trump was running his election campaign and I remember that at that time, I think Sanders was being described as a populist as well. And when you were in that environment, it was not totally clear if this was supposed to be a term of abuse or, or kind of a positive uh, description. So I think there's also that element of it. It comes, it comes very loaded and it's not obvious uh, who gets to decide who's a populist or not, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny if it's, it's someone who's unpopular with me, I'll call them a populist kind of is a, is, a, is, a, is a funny kind of twist on it. But I think all of you, partly because the way the question was set up, you know, how do you govern well in an age of populism, which kind of implies that populism might not straightforwardly be a way to govern well, did think about cases where populism was leading to trouble. So I know some of you have to be a bit careful what you say about British politics. And we don't, so let's, let's think about overseas cases where we've got like Trump saying we're not just that we're going to build a wall, which you might think is a terrible idea, but we're going to make Mexicans pay for a wall to keep Mexicans out. So that's something that wasn't going to happen and didn't happen. Or Bolsonaro ridiculing the experts in Brazil on COVID with, with effects that we're now seeing. In other words, with these sort of examples, as well as the populist style, we're seeing an agenda in government that is dishonest, dangerous, just not going to happen or, or, or some mix of those things and therefore can only disappoint. So if we just try and narrow down that really sweeping potential definition of pro- uh, populism to, to those sort of problems and then some of the solutions each of you have um, got. I'm going to start again with you, Nina. And you think that the answer to the populist challenge is, in fact, to deepen the democracy of our existing institutions, if I, uh, if I summarise you accurately. Yeah, that's right. And I think I think the examples that you gave there of, for instance, um, President Trump suggesting that building a wall and, you know, getting Mexico to pay for it would be 
the kind of solution to this this sense of what the people want. Um, I think that that is a really good example of showing how populism can um, be mis- misunderstood and and kind of responded to in in a maybe more unhelpful way. In that that is obviously quite a simple policy solution to um, really quite like a complex social dilemma that the US was facing. And so without giving the people um, a real opportunity for um, participation in those kind of decisions and a real opportunity for self-determination, those simple policy solutions become very appealing. Um, and what I suggested in my essay really is that in order to like fully tackle the problem and the challenge not not necessarily the problem really, the challenge of populism. It's about understanding it as an appeal for better governance. And in order to in order to do that, by deepening democracy, by providing more ways for people to influence the decisions that affect their lives, you can create a kind of a more stable, a more robust way of governing that is less um less kind of at the mercy of uh politicians that do offer those very simple uh, policy policy solutions because it's not even just simple is it so simplistic these things that we're talking about here but there's maybe a paradox in 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 some of what you say nina in the sense that you want to um in deepen democracy get parliament to engage more with people but there's a way of putting it which would be to say that what you're saying is that we want more parliament as the answer to a rhetoric that's kind of against whether it's parliament or drain the swamp or whatever it is do do you see reason to hope that um that people might be up for more parliamentary democracy if that was more grounded parliamentary democracy than perhaps that we've got at the moment well yeah one of the one of the reasons that's often cited for maybe not pursuing more deliberative forms of democracy specifically in my essay i talk quite a lot about citizens assemblies and um, yeah, one of the reasons that, that people cite for not pursuing those opportunities is because uh, Parliament already offers um, offers a forum for those kind of deliberative discussions. But really, citizens' assemblies and, and tools of deliberation can be used in conjunction with representative institutions in a really complementary way by providing a really credible body of evidence for like an informed public preference that... Um, elected representatives can use to make better policy decisions and and that leads to on the one hand the people that are engaged in citizens assemblies and are aware of citizens assemblies they feel empowered and they feel a connection to those decisions and ultimately you also arrive at better decisions you have decisions that are informed by people who have lived experience of the particular issue that you're trying to address and a kind of shared approach to policy making that includes both people and kind of the, the and and politicians who have you know a different skill set and you you bring those together in a complementary way to create better policies altogether um and you talk in your piece about a, a couple of different examples one was british you thought that the select committees had plugged into a mini public i think you called it on the issue of climate change there's something about oregon which i hadn't heard of before so maybe you could say a word on each of those examples and how these citizens juries sure. make a difference sure yeah i mean yeah the house of commons is already um using these kind of deliberative tools to really enhance the public engagement that they already do so in 2019 six house of commons select committee set up Climate Assembly UK, so that was the first UK-wide citizens' assembly on climate change, and and what 
what we find from that is that when you brought together 108 people who had completely varying views on the kind of importance of climate change, they came from all different kinds of backgrounds, when you brought them together to look at the really complex question of how does the UK get to net zero by 2050 and all of the kind of lifestyle changes involved in that and policy levers, what what was found is that those people, despite being so different from one another, um, were able to kind of come together and create a really clear path for getting to net zero by 2050. And that's just through the kind of principle of deliberation and, and learning more. Um, it, it was a really effective way of, of, you know, basically gauging public preference on, on what they could do to get to net zero by 2050. Um, so um, they were selected through a process called sortition. Um, so what Parliament did was uh, send out 30,000 invitations across the UK um, and of the several thousand that responded, um, the process of sortition ensures that you get 108 people who are representative of the UK in terms of uh, demographic demographic characteristics and attitudinal data as well. Um, so they're really meant to be sort of, like you say, a mini public um, so that you can you can gauge what a, a whole public might might do similarly. And then, sorry, I was just going to ask you as well to give an example from overseas, maybe this Oregon thing you mentioned. Sure, yeah. I mean, the, the Oregon one is really interesting because it's, it's connected to a form of direct democracy. So Oregon often holds um, referendums. And um, before every before every referendum, they bring together this uh, body called the Oregon Citizens Initiative, um, which is a group of people that look at the question that's being put to Oregon and they deliberate on it and come to a view. And that report that they come up with at the end is actually posted to um, all the citizens in Oregon with the ballot paper um, that they get. And so what you find from that one is that it's not just the people who are involved in the Citizens Initiative itself that have this real benefit of understanding the trade-offs that might be involved in the the referendum vote one way one way or the other by ensuring that there's like a public communication campaign to to send that message out wider people beyond that feel the benefits of it and they use the kind of reasoning and the approach that these citizens initiative uh, took to inform their decision on on the day of the vote and um, so it has that kind of emanating effect of um, influencing people beyond just the core people who are involved. Now Callum I already know you're quite sympathetic to some of this because it's also in your essay so I'm going to bring in Oliver and say have you got your doubts about citizens juries or do you think that they're um, a, a good idea? So I think it's on the right track. Um, certainly, I'm all in favour of creating more of a deliberative approach to our public policy formation. I think there are probably two concerns that I have around citizens' assemblies. And the first is that uh, often what they rely upon is 20th century modes of uh, of aggregating opinions and bringing together people. So often you only get, I think, around 100. Uh, I think in the case of Ireland, there was 100 in the Citizens' Assembly. I think for the 21st century, we can be much more expansive in our scope of bringing in people to have this real-time, accurate information about public preferences. I think my second uh, concern is, and this links into my perhaps my recommendation around random selection of party candidates, is that the recommendations of these citizen assemblies aren't always, I think, and I might, might be, I can be corrected, but aren't, uh, aren't binding on the politicians who implement them. And I think that's a problem within the context of 
the age of populism, because if you bring together these people into a citizens' assembly and experts, and then at the end you produce an output, a report, recommendations that are then not accepted by government, uh, it becomes very difficult to defend it against populist attacks that, well, you know, you had the people's input here, but you, you then just ignored it. So there's the potential that that could actually exacerbate uh, populist attacks against government. No, I mean, that's, that, that is interesting. And we had a piece, Callum, um, by a woman called Elian Glaser, who went over to East Belgium, where they, they built a kind of citizens' assembly type set up into their parliament, the East Belgian parliament, which is a small population, but I think it has powers a bit like the Scottish Assembly or whatever. And it doesn't have the final vote, but it kind of, I think it sort of gets stuck in like a standing committee or something might in in, in Parliament and recommend changes and stuff and they have to be considered. But her attack on it was, as someone who quite likes ideology and the clash of ideas, is if you get people outside the party structure and get them to weigh in on um, policy, then they'll come up with rather bland kind of centrist type ideas that like lead you with a slightly anemic politics, you know, because people won't think outside the box unless they're kind of part of an energised tribe. So this is a, you know, very different type of argument. But I just wonder what you made of that, Callum, given that you're also recommending citizens' assemblies as one of your solutions. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I'm pretty sympathetic to both approaches. I think they're both quite good ideas. And for me, the key thing is to try and do something differently. I think, you know, to Ollie's point, when you look at the kind of governing institutions we have, I mean, in lots of ways, they're very different than what they would have been 100 years ago. But in many ways, they haven't, you know, changed enormously in terms of how they're structured and who's in them and the people who have access to them. So I think that's that's definitely something that's, that's you know, there's a range of things you could try. I think the, the other thing I think about on the limitations of citizens' assemblies is um, the sort of, when you look at how they're set up, the people who participate in them have to go through, I think, quite a high level of education um, before they can really uh, be effective participants in a citizen assembly. And I think there's something interesting to look at there as to sort of why that is and what kind of um, radical kind of interventions you can make up front so you don't have to, you know, do your learning on days one and two of the citizen assembly. And I, I don't know what that might be, but it would be about maybe having a more kind of democratic and participatorily informed public in the first place. Um Right. So kind of, I mean, that's really going back to the school school system and broadcasting and things like that, rather than the way you construct the... Yeah, yeah, for example, and also sort of resources to participate in those things, I think are interesting. You know, it's, it's hard to get really excited about politics if you're working, I think, uh, you know, kind of 60 hour week and two jobs and are constantly stressed. It's very difficult to get involved in something like a citizen's assembly. It feels like a hobby for people who have, you know, maybe the time to do it. And I know, I know you can pay stipends and so on to do it, but it, it's still... It still feels like an extracurricular, I guess. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Nina, what do you think? I mean, do any of these criticisms hit home with you? Or do you think actually with the careful waiting and subsidising participants and stuff, you can get around all the problems really? Yeah, I mean, there's there's been a few few challenges to the Citizens' Assembly idea there. I mean, f- firstly, um, Oliver mentioned about the recommendations not, not being binding. And I think that in order to make sure that you do have this complementary relationship between representative institutions and deliberative tools, actually the, the recommendations not being binding is, is the right way to go. Um, because I think then it's about providing richer richer evidence and richer data for decision makers um, but that not being the kind of sole reference point for any decisions that are made it's kind of part of the whole package available to to politicians on the point about education of the of the participants um, that that is one of the criteria where um, citizens assembly participants are often often selected on so um, what level of education that you have is often often included kind of in the data mix to make sure that you've got a range of people with different educational levels and, and obviously they do go through this period at the start of a citizens assembly where they learn but that's a really key phase to ensure that you know any decisions that they're making thereafter are, are informed by real real information and finally i mean definitely the point about having time and yeah i guess space to engage with these kinds of things very often citizens assemblies your the participants are given a stipend for for taking part and that is to ensure that exactly that you don't have a self-selecting body of people taking part you know it's something that's available for everyone thank you very much nina now let's move on to oliver's idea which is more radical really because it's not just about group in which people can discuss it's about changing who gets to be a politician isn't it um ollie Yes, absolutely. I think I, I set it within the context of the decline of the political party uh, in its representative functions. So we all know uh, that the, the, the membership of each major political party within the UK, but also across, I suppose, Western Europe and in the Americas has declined over the last 20, 30 years, uh, even with the sort of increase of, uh, of support for Jeremy Corbyn and the movement under uh, Labour movement. I think that's the critical context within uh, that, that sets up my idea is that how do we then fill the void that has been left by the party evacuating from the public space, but also people moving away from, from traditional forms of, of engaging with politics. And uh, what I come up with was this idea of the random selection of party candidates as a way in which to combine, to re- reignite that sort of spark between the public and government. Uh, and so the, the, the way in which you would do it would be to have a proportion of constituencies that are random, that randomly select people to then be part of a particular political party and they would run on a manifesto that they would then be, be binded to. 
So I think that's that's the critical, yeah, is, is far more radical, I think, and uh, than citizen assemblies, not least because I think the inertia within the current system to any sort of radical change like this. Okay, so so at one level this sounds very new and and, and all the rest of it, but of course another level it's very old. The ancient Greeks had sortition, didn't they, um, uh, for lots of the most important decisions in the Athenian days. And um, of course, we still use decision for really sortition decisions in a really important context of, of the, the, not the citizens jury, the conventional criminal jury. Um, and so um, it's not as out of the box of all of that. And yet you're quite keen, it seems, to rescue the role of the party because you bring them in, in, in neither in juries or in ancient Athens, did you have anything like parties? You part of the idea is probably you just pick people at random and you can forget all that kind of factional stuff. So what why is it you go for this sort of halfway house that I've never heard anyone put forward before? Yes. I mean, so it definitely does. Um, when I was thinking about this this idea, um, I did have at the back of my mind uh, what happened in sort of ancient Greece. But I think the, the key difference is, is that you have a situation where everyone ha- over the age of 18 is enfranchised. So immediately you have a much more rich and diverse base than you had in, in, in ancient Greece. I think the second point around bringing in the political party was that you have to sort of at least try and work within the confines of the current system. You can't just sort of scrap everything in this nihilistic approach and then rebuild from from the ground up. And so what I wanted to do was to say, at the moment, what we can do is we can innovate, we can experiment within the current system. But my aim was really at a point in time to say, Uh, at some point in the future to say perhaps we don't need political parties anymore and this was an approach to say that that from these sort of very grassroots approach to doing party politics maybe we might find a better way of doing it uh, without the party so let's just let's just walk through it step by step because it is so novel and such a hybrid so let's say your experiment I think you're going to leave half the seats pretty much as they are And then let's say half, could be a third, could be two thirds, are going to have this sortition thing. So just tell us the stages. Is stage one the lottery? And do people have to register as a Labour or a Conservative person to be in that lottery? Or do they just tell us what way around it all works? Yes, so I I think what you need to do is randomly select the constituencies. If you're going to select a proportion of constituencies, you need to randomly select the ones that are going to be part of this experiment. Um, and then identify an organisation to be appointed to, to, to choose the candidates for each political party. I think each party would have to say whether they wanted to be a part of, to run in the constituencies that you've identified to be part of this experiment. And then from that point, you'll be able to randomly select the uh, people from the electoral register to, uh, to be part of to, to, uh, a potential political party platform. And they would be able to choose, I think that's the key point, they would be able to choose which party to then represent. Um, Or potentially if they want to be be an independent, I think that should be an important part of this movement away potentially from party politics. And then once you have all of your candidates, I mean, some of them in, let's say, Labour, um, heavily Labour constituencies, you may find that a lot of people want to want to be part of the Labour Party, but not many people want to be part of the Conservative Party, for example. So you would continue this random, random selection until you find representatives who want to be part of um, all the parties that want to stand in that constituency. And then the election runs as normal. Um, so the, it's, it's all of the process happens well before the actual election day. Um, 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 would you end up with, you know, maybe a couple of independents, but a Labour, a Conservative and a Lib Dem, one, one of each? Yes, 
That's the idea, yeah. Right. Callum, Mum and uh, Nina, what does either of you think about that? It certainly sounds different. I mean, I, you know, you referenced uh, uh, ancient Greece and, I, you know, I studied philosophy way back. And so this is something that's actually always appealed to me quite a lot. And I can remember walking around the Parthenon being quite excited at the prospect of sortition and those kind of appointments. Um, I can think of sort of challenges around it. You know, you might, constituents might worry that they weren't getting a professional politician uh, if, if they saw that their neighbouring constituency was getting someone, you know, that was appropriately trained. But um, I think you could find ways of, of meeting that, you know, maybe maybe the, the sort of uh, the professional politician is paired up with someone who's in uh, who, who's, who's kind of selected at random or something like that. So I certainly wouldn't want to poo-poo it for any of those reasons. I actually think it's, it's very cool, to be honest. I, I think it'd be worth trying. And then, of course, when you look at the German parliament or indeed the Scottish parliament we're about to elect, it does have these different categories of MPs if they're coming through the list or through a seat. So that kind of mixed member thing, Nina, isn't entirely new. I mean, you, you, you've advocated just now for, for the citizens' assemblies. If they work that well, why not say a third of them are going to be the MPs as well? Sure. I mean, I think, yeah, I think you're right that at the core of what I am suggesting and that what Oliver is suggesting is that having a more diverse range of voices involved in decision making is beneficial and then you get you get policies and decisions and overall a politics that is more reflective of you know the complexity of society we have now and what we're both suggesting is that um we should be taking advantage of the different kind of tools that we have now and also the kind of technology we have now to progress democracy forward um, and to kind of create um, a, a democratic system that maybe looks quite different um, to, to how it does now. I see. So, so, I mean, there is this this commonality, I think, definitely, whereas I guess you put the emphasis, Nina, a bit more on the political process, whereas Oliver's more on the kind of political personnel, that we're not going to m- make that l- missing connection between the governing and the governed, if this is right, Oliver, unless the people that you can see are ultimately writing the law look a lot more like the country rather than just people feeding Absolutely. into it. Yes, and I, I think on a symbolic level, because I think that a lot of a lot of the time populists work on the symbolic level. They say that we represent the people. Um, by the people, they mean often part of the people. I think to counteract that, well, you've got a, an inbuilt bias against populist attacks. That the elites are there, um, who who siphon off funds from the state. They're corrupt. They're they're deceitful. They they produce lies. What you've got is this inbuilt defence to say, well, hang on a second, if half or whatever proportion of the constituencies are uh, are elected f- directly from the people, um, uh, at least chosen as party candidates through random ballot, then they cannot use that line of attack uh, um, that, that, that they've been so successful in doing across Western Europe and, and in other areas of representative democracy. Right, then let's come on to Callum's um, uh, paper. I mean, the, the main message, Callum, is a bit more analysis than prescription compared to the other two, isn't it? In that you're, you're saying, we talked about the definition of populism at the beginning, but, you know, make sure that you understand this as a symptom rather than as the underlying disease. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's the first thing that I thought when I saw the question, actually, was just 
I I hear people um, rail against populists um, as if they're some kind of freestanding force that's just appeared in the political scene and, and if there's something mysterious about why it's happening and where it's coming from. And what I wanted to do was kind of pair that back and say, well, actually, there's relatively uh, clear reasons why these things are happening. It's not all the product of, you know, crazed social media or, you know, the kind of irrational it. It's actually there's there's real failings in the governance system as it was up until the populist moment. And that addressing those failings is pretty critical. And so whilst it's all well and good to criticise, you know, populists and there's clearly some like very unsavoury parts of, of populist movements, um, it's a complete waste of time unless you're addressing the sort of fundamental failures of governance that have happened before that. And so the the, the sorts of um, failures of governance you talk about are, you know, not noticing the financial crisis was going to happen, starting wars, you didn't know how to stop that kind of just quite conventional policy failure stuff, really. To some extent, yeah. I mean, I I, I sort of picked out three. One is around legitimacy, um, um, and that was um, the ability to sort of recognise that the government is entitled to the power that it has over you. Um, and that relates to some of those things. You know, if, if you're starting wars or causing financial crises, um, and ostensibly it feels like uh, no one uh, has to deal with the consequences of those things, you might start to question whether the, the authorities actually, you know, are entitled to the power they have. Um, and the next two around effectiveness, so how well you can deliver on the plans you have, and then providence, so just how well you can meet the kind of trials and tribulations of, of the age. Um, and I'm suggesting that actually on all three fronts, uh, prior to the populist moment, many governments uh, weren't doing very well on those, and it was potentially predictable. <laughs> right, so, so so kind of a conventional failure, even a nice um, old-fashioned language there about providence um, and just not being nimble enough to... Um, to, to deal with it. And so then when we come on to um, solutions, obviously, like um, we might hope that some of these tricks we've been talking about in terms of opening up the personnel and the process of, uh, of politics might lead to more out of the box and less doomed solutions than we had in the pre-populist moment, if you like. But as well as the ideas the other two were countenancing, you were talking, I think, about extending the franchise. Now, we might think we've gone all the way in extending the franchise, but you say no. It, it's similar to the kind of riffing off some of the things the other two have been thinking about. You know, what are the ways you can expand democracy or expand participation in ways that could shake things up? And and one of the suggestions which comes from uh, uh, David Runciman and, and others is to actually just expand the franchise to, to children. Um, so, you know, reduce the voting age to 14, maybe, things like that. And, and there's a sense in which you don't know what will happen if you do that. Uh, but I think mm. that kind of you don't know what will happen is probably a good thing because it means you actually might see novel results which could provide solutions to, to the sort of struggling system as it is. Let's just kick that one around for a minute. I mean, Nina, like 150 years ago, one reason given for not extending the franchise to women was, oh, well, women will just vote as their husbands do, so there's no point. And I imagine you'd get the same reaction with this idea on children. <laughs> Although I'm not, again, I'm not sure it's any more true than it was of women. What do you think? Do you think this is a lunatic idea or not? No, I mean, I think, ch- yeah, changing the, way that, changing the way that democracy is run so that people feel that there are new ways to get their, their views across is, is really important and, and extending the franchise could, could well be a part of that. I suppose what I would maybe caution is that at the moment we do have 
we do have ways for people to, you know, provide their view views to politicians via general elections, the occasional referendum, but that those um, those opportunities are firstly quite sporadic. I mean, it's it's once every few years, although it's been more often than that in the in the past few years. But the 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 options they give you are, are still quite binary. You know, you're voting for for one party manifesto or another, and getting the kind of rich data that you need on on how people really want to live their lives and what kind of specific um, government policies they would want to see in order to achieve certain aims, it's hard to get that from from a general election vote or a referendum. So are you potentially just avoiding addressing the real issue, which is how do we have a governance system that is more continually responsive to the public preferences of people. So, so you're more worried about the gap between the elections in a way than the exact number of people who are voting in them. Um, Oliver, what about you? I mean, you're in Think Tank land, as I'm kind of on the edges of as well. And, you know, we worry a lot, don't we, Think Tanks at the moment, all about whether or not the younger generation is being shortchanged at the expense of the elder. Seeing as you're into hybrid solutions, we saw that with your sortition plan, how about the idea of extending voting to children right down to infants, but giving that as an extra vote to the parents? So, you know, if it is a five-year-old, the parent can vote on the behalf of that child rather than pretending that a four-year-old's going to vote. How would that be as a middle way for you? I mean, so it's, it's interesting. I think it's definitely in keeping with all of our approaches to combine experience with expertise. And I think you're quite right in, in saying that what's happening at the moment is that the older generations are more likely to vote. Therefore, parties are often seen to pander towards what older voters are seen as their interests or their opinions and, their, and, and, and what they would want to get out of the political process. I think extending the franchise may mean that you end up talking more about what young people want. So uh, around, for example, climate change seems to be quite clearly uh, an aspect of policy that is the younger people are, are more favourable towards, towards tackling climate change. But the difficulty is, where do you put that line? Where do you say, how far do we want to extend the franchise? Is it right down to the age of five? And then I think you're quite right. What happens then is... If, if parents are able to take to, to vote on behalf of their five-year-old child, are we not just ruining the whole idea of democracy as one man, one vote, or one woman, one vote? So it is very difficult to, to actually understand how best we merge experience with expertise without undermining, potentially, the very fundamental principles of democracy. Callum, I'm going to give you one more go on this and just see how hard you want to push it? Because, I mean, I suppose the answer to Oliver might be, well, we'll still go with one person, one vote, but we recognise if you're dealing with an infant, that infant's interest needs to be exercised by somebody else. I mean, in, in a thing we did for the magazine recently, I looked up the median age of voting at the moment. The median person on the electoral register is 50. The median vote cast is by someone who's 50. Three, I'm older than all of you, and that still sounds quite old to me for a median voter. So how are you going to push it? I mean, I might not go all the way to the infants. I do, I do worry that if, if you do that, what you'll be doing is just empowering people who are already have the time, you know, and interest in participating in politics. Basically, upper middle class people who have loads of kids to go and vote more uh, because they'll all get more votes. Well, not loads, but some kids. So, and, and that doesn't feel quite fair. But I, I do uh, a lot of... What Ollie was just saying about, I, I think that younger people will have 
you know, when when you're 16, you have quite a different time horizon in terms of what you're thinking about, because you're not actually worried about any of the things which are going to be difficult for your own life yet. The world has a kind of endless realm of possibilities and you can kind of be interested in anything. And I think you probably have quite a, a long time horizon for the kind of things you're thinking about. Um, and I suspect you would find the sorts of topics that would come up would might be quite different if you had to appeal to people who are thinking in that long-term way rather than people who uh, maybe were less so. Fantastic. Well, I think we're going to have to leave it there, but I'm really pleased that between the three of you, we've got quite a lot of kind of thinking outside the box ideas there for how to respond to populism and how to save democracy. No one can accuse us of being too modest in the range of things we were talking about. So thanks to the three of you for joining us in the pod this week and thanks to all of you out there for tuning in. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a rating and a review. You can read all three essays, which are all excellent, on the Bennett Centre for public policy website and there's an edited version of Callum's winning essay at prospectmagazine.co.uk under the title Populism is a mere symptom treatment must target the underlying disease. Thanks again for listening, goodbye, stay safe and we'll see you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.